Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any of the followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Well, hello, Heritage. This week, we continue in our Acts series, Church on Fire, exploring why this early first century church was on fire and what does it mean for us to be a church on fire as well. Today, we're going to turn our focus on a man who would end up dominating almost all of the conversation in the second half of the book of Acts. This is a man who never met Jesus personally during his ministry time on earth, yet would take the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, he would write 14 of them. Much of what we understand about how we do church, how we choose leaders, and even how we walk through conflict, we learned from this man. Many of us know him by the name Paul. He also had the name Saul, and he continues to have a great influence on the modern church as well. But perhaps you're asking the question, why the two names? Why the Paul and the Saul? And the answer is, it wasn't actually that uncommon in the first century for people to have two names. Paul was a Roman citizen, which was Greek-speaking. He was also an Israelite, which was largely Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking. His name translated in the Greek was Paul. His name translated in Hebrew was Saul. So he had both names. Now, I've had several people before say, listen, Saul changed his name to Paul after his conversion experience, which we're going to talk about today, but that's not true. He actually had both names beforehand. What is true is this. Most of where Paul went on his missionary journeys were to Gentile or Greek-speaking areas of the empire, so he went by his name Paul. And there's a general understanding that the more he wanted to define himself away from Judaism, into this new thing called Christianity, the more he used his name Paul to move away from Saul. So that much is true. Now, we were first introduced to Saul, if you may remember, in the story of the stoning of Stephen. It is said that Saul was there and that the leaders who were stoning Stephen placed their coats or their jackets at the feet of Saul to watch them. We have a quick verse that mentions him in Acts chapter 8, verse 3. It says, But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. This Saul was a bad dude. You did not want to mess with him. He had an axe to grind, and he was going to get it done. 
Today we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 9. So I'm going to encourage you if you have your Bible to turn to Acts chapter 9 or on your electronic device. The verses are inside your worship guide and they will be on the screens as well for you to follow along. I also realize that there's a group of you out there who are a little bit like me, and you, you like to look into meanings of words and kind of find that story behind the stories we go along. So today we're going to dive in a little further into a couple of these verses and what I'll have as nerd alerts so that we can stop and just learn and dig in just a little bit more. So let's jump in. We're in Acts chapter 9. We will start in verse 1. Read with me if you could. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, nerd alert number one, as you're looking at these verses, and this is something you may or may not know, but that's this, Saul going to the high priest is unusual. Saul going to the high priest is unusual. You see, because Saul was a Pharisee, but the high priests were Sadducees. Now, we often like to use them in the same sentence as if they are friends, but they are not. We'll often say Pharisees and Sadducees as if they're the same thing, but they were not. They were two different groups of people that, yes, shared Judaism as their central religion, but ideologically, they had some big differences that they argued with each other and often confronted each other on. Also, what we need to know is that they are both in many ways kind of political parties who were vying for power and control of the temple system. At this time, the Sadducees had power and control of the temple system, so Paul had to go to them, but this is very unusual. To put it a little bit in perspective, it would be kind of like today me, a Protestant pastor, going to the Pope and asking him for permission to have some people arrested. That would be highly unusual. What is interesting, though, is for all their ideological differences and for all their power struggles, they seem to agree on this one thing at least, and that's that these followers of Jesus Christ needed to be stomped out. They at least agreed on that much. Now, the second thing we need to know, an interesting point, and maybe you picked it up as we were reading along in the passage, but it's this. The early church was known as the way. That was how they were identified. They were called the way. It would not be for many years later. We see a first mention of it in Acts 11 in Antioch, but it would not be for many, many years that they would be known as Christians. The early church in its first few years was called the way. And of course, this is taken from the very words of Jesus himself when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, as we continue reading Acts chapter 9, verse 3, we see this. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Now, the third important thing we need to know and kind of nerdy little fact as we dive into this verse is this. Just because Saul calls him Lord does not mean he thinks he's God. 
Just because he calls him Lord here does not mean he thinks he's God. The ancient Greek word used here is kyrios, which is just a formal greeting of respect. It'd be a little bit today like me saying, yes, ma'am, or no, sir. It was just a statement or a greeting of respect. He was using his good manners. And I, I think it goes without saying, and I know every mom here would agree, that if you're out there and you see bright lights and hear voices from heaven, you need to be on your best manners. And make sure you take a clean pair of underwear. <laughs> now the answer to Paul's question, who are you, comes in Acts chapter 9, verse 5. And it says this, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, time out. Wait a minute, just a moment here. Paul was not on his way to Damascus to persecute Jesus. Jesus is dead, according to Paul. Jesus is gone. He's not after Jesus. He's after a group of followers of Jesus. He's after people who are following a dead man. And he wants to get them. But in this statement, we see an important fact that weaves itself throughout the entire New Testament and is just as real and applicable today. And that is this. When you attack the church, you attack Jesus. When you attack the church, you attack Jesus. That is why we must be careful about what we say and how we talk about the church. We must take it seriously because what you say about the church is what you say about Jesus. And Paul would more and more begin to understand that in his later years, many years later, as he was writing on several occasions, he talked about the church being the body. In particular, I want to pick one out in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30. He said this, For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Paul would later understand that this unique relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, was the same as biblical godly-based marriage in the New Testament, that the two become one. They are united, and so when you go after one, you go after the other. The other thing we need to realize is in this very short sentence, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, some light bulbs of reality were now going off in Paul's head. Some things began to come crashing in around him. He had some aha moments during this time. You see, because... The voice could have just as easily said, hey, this is God, could you knock it off? Or it could have used any one of the number of sovereign divine titles in the Old Testament that Paul or Saul, the Pharisee, would have recognized, but it didn't. It deliberately said, I am Jesus. Why? Because it is in that short greeting, a now rather terrifying reality became apparent to Paul, Jesus is alive. Jesus is, in fact, alive. He's not a dead man. After all, he is alive. 
This Saul who had stood there while Stephen was stoned for declaring Jesus is Lord. This Saul who had gone out of his way to seek out getting papers to ensure that these Christians were imprisoned and tortured and in other cases even killed. This Saul had gone out of his way to go after them, had now come to the very realization that this Jesus he was going after was in fact alive. And because he was alive, everything about what he thought and the way things were supposed to be came tumbling down around him. Have you ever been in a situation in life where everything you thought about how things were supposed to go and what was supposed to happen came tumbling down around you? Has there ever been a time when your plans, your agendas, your how-tos suddenly fell to pieces around you? I want to show you a story here in just a second of someone whose life fell to pieces all around them. And it was in the midst of that that Jesus found them too. Watch this story with me. I grew up in a small town south of here called Alito and uh, grew up in a pretty normal family, normal life, uh, going to church. I really didn't know God. I knew a rules-based God and a dead God. That's, that was my understanding of who God was. And uh, so throughout junior high, high school, I started making some small bad decisions and eventually those turn into larger bad decisions and uh, really got into drugs heavy in high school uh, got into alcohol and party lifestyle everything that that comes with that and hurt a lot of people in that process and uh, I also had some highlights you know I was in the military as a private investigator once I graduated went to alternative school so I, I had some some bad times and I had some good times as well um, but sadly the drugs just always hung in there and found myself homeless at age 18, 19 and I remember nights waking up in the back of a van because it was the only thing that I had breaking into hotel rooms for a place to stay um, selling everything I had just to get that next fix that next high and that life just continued to tear apart every good thing that I had um, ended up um, being discharged from the military because of my drug use, um, ended up losing my private investigating job, um, and so I hurt my family, and, and so just drugs just literally ripped apart my life. And eventually I did stuff that I never thought I would ever imagine doing. Broke into multiple people's homes um, to steal items in order to continue getting that next high. And uh, eventually that led me to a jail, a Mercer County Jail, and I would spend the next year of my life there. Jail was a, um, not a fun experience. You know, when I first got there, I'd been to jail off and on before. Um, and when I first entered jail, I was looking at 14 years. And so having that sentence over your head is a pretty scary thing. And when you're in jail, you're trying to figure out who you are because you're no longer known as Rusty Boroff. I was known as inmate in cell 121. And trying to wrap my mind around that and finding out um, I had a choice. I could let God define who I was or I could let cell 121 define who I was. And that was a tough moment of my life. And um, you're 100% out of control. 
I didn't, I couldn't control anything. I had a son that was on the way. I couldn't call his mom and see how he's doing. I couldn't, I, I couldn't reach out to my family whenever I wanted to. I was in a small cell, cell 121, with a bunch of other dudes, and it was a scary moment. Um, but thankfully, there was this older gentleman named Merle who would come in every Sunday. He was the only volunteer that would ever come into the jail, and he'd come visit me. And he wasn't the most exciting speaker. He was in, in his, like, 90s. He would actually fall asleep while he was talking to me. Um, but it was never what Merle really said that made the biggest impact on my life. It's what he did. And by him going into that jail cell every Sunday, number one, it showed me that God forgave me for the stuff I had done in my life. And number two, it showed me that someone believed in Rusty Borov, no matter all the mistakes I had made in my life, no matter all the people I had hurt in my life, showed me that someone believed in me. And that was my motivation to change my life. And uh, so that's where I found Jesus, was in cell 121, through a 90-year-old guy just coming in to talk to me every Sunday. And it made a huge impact in my life. Amen. Amen. You can clap. Jesus found Saul on a road to Damascus. He found me one morning on the way to work. He found Rusty in cell 121. How about you? Where did Jesus find you? Has there been a time in your life when you cried out in brokenness and asked for forgiveness from this Savior, where you said, I'm tired of doing it my way. I surrender my will and my way. I want to serve you. When was the time you did that? Because at some point in life, we have to get real with ourselves. I mean, we got to come to reality with who we are and, and, and not the reality of who you think you are, the reality of who you really are in the eyes of God. And sometimes that is an absolutely terrifying place to be when you are in the presence of a pure, holy, righteous, and mighty God. Because in his presence, all the lies and all the deception, all the pretending and all the masks, all the false humility melt before a perfect and pure God. We are left naked in the presence of God with nowhere to run. But that's the gift. That's the gift. It is. It's the gift. The gift of salvation is when God gives you a glimpse, ever so small it may be, of his majesty and his glory and his holiness and his perfection. He gives you a glimpse of that, and it is in seeing God for the first time that we see our, ourselves in the first time in comparison, and it should drop us to our knees. It should drop us and give us humility. We should be crying out at that time, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, forgive me. Lord, because in the light of God, 
we must confront our sin. And on that road to Damascus, Paul had to face the light of God. And his sin blinded him. He had to confront it head on. And while he had many sins, there was one in particular that Paul had to confront on this road to Damascus, and that's this. He had to confront the sin of religion. He had to confront religion because this much we know about Paul. Paul was a very religious man. A very religious man. He was a Pharisee. To become a student, to, be, to rise to the level of Pharisee, only the top 1% of the 1% of the boys were chosen for this honor. They had to memorize the entire Old Testament. How you doing? It is said that Saul studied under a teacher named Gamaliel, who according to the Jewish Mishnah is one of the greatest teachers of all time. Saul learned underneath one of the greatest rabbis of all time. In describing himself in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, he said this, If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul had checked off all the right boxes. He had attended all the cl right classes. He had memorized all the right things, read all the right books. He had done all the right ceremonies and all the right rituals. And yet we find this religious man on the road to Damascus heading towards the Christians finds himself very, very far from God. Why? What happened? And I think it's this one thing that we have to get our arms around if we're to understand what Jesus was calling us to, and that's this. Religion doesn't save you. Religion does not, cannot, and will not save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. Only Jesus Christ's saving power can save you. Because religion is concerned with methods and how to do things. Religion likes to tell us how to get to God. It's about rules and regulations and the consequences of not following those rules and regulations. Religion is about following teachings. If you want to be a Buddhist, you have to follow the teachings of Buddha. If you want to be Muslim, you have to follow the teachings of Muhammad and the Quran. But that is not Christianity. It never has been. And this is why the world gets so frustrated 
frustrated with genuine Christians when they try to get into a debate with them because it's not about rules and regulations. The world wants to compare our rules and our regulations, at least the ones they perceive we have, with someone else's rules and regulations and see and measure up which one's better and which one do we like. But Christianity has not and will never be about rules and regulations. It is not a religion. It is not a belief system. At its core, when you strip back all the layers, when you take Christianity to its very core of what it believes and why it believes it, it is this. And I gave you a box in there with three blanks so you can write this as large as you want in that box because you got to know this. At its core, when everything is stripped away, Christianity is this, Christ in us. Christ in us. And Paul would speak of this later in Colossians chapter 1. He said, To them, the church, God has chosen to make known amongst the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. He's talking about the mystery of the good news, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Christianity is this very real idea that this risen and resurrected Jesus Christ can live in your heart and that he can work in and through you. And because he can work in and through you, he is changing you to become more and more like him every day. It is life changed through Jesus because Christ is in you. And if you go looking for Christianity and religion, you will never find it because religion wants to tell you how to get to God, but at its core, Christianity is how God came to us. It is about grace, and nothing stands more in contradiction to rules and regulations and religion than grace. Grace tears down religion. Christianity is not a set of rules to follow. And at the bottom, at the bottom, when you really get down to it and we really get honest with each other, religion is simply man's well-intentioned but silly attempt to feel good about their bad behavior by accomplishing odd tasks or serving in various ways that someone or somehow will take notice and tell them they're a pretty good person. It's still a posture of doing rather than being. Christianity's not a set of rules. It's not a religion. It is Jesus Christ living inside of us that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. That is what makes Christianity different. The difference of Christianity and every other religion out there is we believe this risen Savior actually takes up residence in our heart and because of the power of his Holy Spirit is working in and through us to change us, becoming more and more like him. Does that mean that reading the Bible is not important? No, I'm not saying that. Does that mean we shouldn't follow the teachings of Jesus Christ? No, that's not what I'm saying either. It's not the point. But let me give you an example, a real-life daily example, to show you what I mean. Many years ago, I remember my mom teaching me how to iron. I love to iron. I'm sick that way. <laughs> can't help it. 
And I remember she was showing me, she says, listen, if you want to iron properly, you need to make sure you set it to the right temperature based on the fabric that you're trying to iron. And you need to position it a certain way on the ironing board so that you can get the wrinkles out properly. And she said, and the most important thing, sweetie, is to use the right starch. I said, okay, mama. And so then she takes the iron and she puts it on the fabric and nothing happens. Why? She forgot to plug it in. <laughs> to which I said, I think turning it on is the most important thing, mama. Which was really dumb at the time. <laughs> it's not that turning it to the right temperature isn't important. It's not that placing it in the correct way on the ironing board is important. Those are all important things. But if you don't turn the iron on, it's not going to work. And the same is true in Christianity as well. It's not that following the teachings of Jesus is important or reading the Bible is important. Those are important things. But unless this risen Savior, Jesus Christ, is living inside of you, you're just playing church. Only the power of the Holy Spirit of this risen Savior living in you will you be alive. And hear me on this. The hardest people to explain true Christianity to are people who think they are already Christians. Trust me on this. The hardest people to explain genuine Christianity to are people who think they are already Christians. And listen, at no time did Jesus say, I came that you might have religion and religion more abundantly or adhere to it more committedly or define it more dogmatically or defend it more vehemently. Jesus never even said behave more morally. No, what Jesus said in John chapter 10, 10 is this. I have come that you may have life and life to the full. There was no religion in the Garden of Eden. There will be no religion in heaven. And I am quite convinced that Jesus Christ died on a cross for us to Quit the silliness right here and now. Amen? Christianity is not a religion. It was never meant to be. It is a movement of God's people living on purpose and mission to shine the light of Jesus into a dark world so that they may know that there is hope and healing to this Jesus Christ, that through their lives lived out, this Jesus who lives inside of them works in them and through them to show the world that Jesus Christ can save them, that this is not hopeless, that there is hope. We are the bearers of the message, Christ in us. We are God's people, and we are a movement, which gets us to our so what moment. On this road to Damascus, Paul faced his religion 
face to face, and he was blinded by it. What's interesting is Paul would spend his entire ministry career fighting with those who always constantly wanted to add more onto the simple message of Jesus Christ. They always wanted to add layers of religion on, and Paul was constantly telling them, no, Jesus Christ came to set us free from that. In particular, there was a group of them in Galatia called the Judaizers, and these were former Jews that had become Christians, but they were constantly looking at the non-Jews that had become Christians and saying, listen, if you want to be a real Christian, if you want to be a complete Christian, well, you need to dress a certain way. You need to observe certain festivals and certain ceremonies, and you need to eat certain foods. And Paul was constantly saying, no, that is not the gospel. You're adding on to it. That's not what Jesus Christ came to do. In fact, at one point, they came and said, listen, if you want to be in good standing before God, all the men who become followers of Jesus Christ need to go get circumcised. And this infuriated Paul. He had had enough. And when we pick up that conversation in Galatians, 5.12, it says this, as for those agitators, I wish they would just go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Ouch. <laughs> and I would remind us, Paul is human too. So before you go post that one on Facebook <laughs> or tell your neighbor to go emasculate themselves, I would remind you that's not nice. I often wonder if Paul wasn't thinking back later going, gosh, you know, I probably could have worded that one a little differently. <laughs> and if you don't know what the word emasculate is, I'm not telling you. <laughs> Ask your neighbor or something. But the fact that half the guys in the rooms have their legs crossed and are grimacing ought to be a hint, all right? <laughs> Christianity is not a religion. It was never meant to be. Jesus Christ did not die on a cross to bring us religion. And the church is not in the religion business. We are in the business of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. We are in the business of equipping and resourcing people to take that good news out in places it's never been before so that people may know that there is hope in Jesus Christ. And what is this good news we carry? Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. My dear friends, the world is full of religious people. It's full of them, religious people. And yet I argue it is only at the end of the road, the dead-end road of religion, when we lose it all, that we find this risen Savior. Just like the R.E.M. song, Losing Our Religion, it's only when we lose it that we will find this Jesus Paul would remember the freedom that comes from losing religion. And he wrote in Galatians 5.1, he said, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. 
When you allow Jesus to work in and through you, he will change you in ways that you have never and could never imagine. And he will change you in ways that rituals and ceremonies and religion never could. So what does this mean practically, though, for me? What, what am I saying here today? For many, they like to come up and ask me, hey, what do you think about this issue or that issue or this recent Supreme Court thing? What's your stance on that, Jason? And my answer is this. You're asking me the wrong question. The real question is this. Does Jesus Christ live in and through you? Does Jesus Christ live in and through you? Because if Jesus Christ doesn't live in and through you, I don't expect you to act like Jesus. The answer isn't more rules and regulations. The answer is you need Jesus Christ living in and through you. And when we can move that argument finally away from rules and regulations and we can move it to what we are all about, we will be known for what we are for, not what we are against. And we are for Jesus Christ working powerfully in and through you because he will change you from within in a way I never could. And this creator God does not need you and I to change other people he's capable of doing it himself so do me a favor please church I'm begging you Stop the social media rhetoric and religion conversations going on out there. I don't need to see any more articles that prove your point. I get it. You're right. All right? You win. And I don't need to see any more Bible verses used out there like weapons to prove your point because you're not helping the conversation. Do me a favor on the other side. Change your Facebook picture back to its original color. Frankly, it's kind of cliche and bandwagon-ish. And the Jesus I know says that you are his unique masterpiece. We are not people of the herd. We are unique people with a unique voice. Be who God designed you to be and stand up as that unique masterpiece in this world. And my friends, for heaven's sakes, love each other. Above all else, just love each other. See everyone with the same eyes of grace that Jesus Christ sees you. And the same eyes of grace that Jesus Christ saw this murderer, Saul, on the road to Damascus. Because if Jesus Christ truly lives inside someone, he is big enough to change them without you and I. So let's lose the religion jargon and let's lose all the rules and regulations and let's just get back to what this thing Christianity is all about. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And when people see this Jesus Christ living in and through you, they may know there is hope and healing in this world through our lives lived out. Let's pray. Dear Lord, May we be the people you created us to be, lights that shine in the darkness. You are the light that shines 
in and through us to help show people that there is still forgiveness, that there is still hope, that God loves them. He never turned his back on us, even though we turned our backs on him so many, many times. May we be people that are known for who we are, not what we are against. And we are for the message of Christ in you. And so, Lord, if there's anyone today that has never taken that step to say, Jesus Christ lives in me, may today be the day where they cry out in brokenness and say, Father, forgive me. I want to serve you. And, Lord, may we be people who are defined by love in all that we do because this resurrected Savior lives inside of us. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.